With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. It came as a surprise to me. It was at odds with the way she presented. It's taken 45 years to bring a killer to court. And for the first time in UK history, you'll hear the full murder trial and witness justice being done. It was a brutal murder of a brilliant woman who was a rising star in genetic research. It would now be almost like a script from Morse. The investigators swarming over the, the dreaming spires of university land. There was kind of palpable feeling of evil in the air. I was told it was just a massive blood in here. Two decades on from confronting evil. So did you kill your ex-wife Brenda Page? Evil is being confronted by the law. Did you kill her? No. She knew it was coming. He said he was going to kill her. If he killed her, he would do it so that nobody would know. Will his true nature be unmasked? Are you familiar with the tale of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And can Brenda's own words help secure her killer's fate? A letter of a death foretold. This is The Storyteller, Naked Villainy, written, produced and edited by me, Isla Traquair. It's still only day two of the trial, and with a strong start from the Crown, with Dr. Brenda Page's sister, Rita, her friend Diane Davies, and her lawyer Nicole Jose, it was time for the jury to hear the forensic details of her death from a pathologist. But before we get into that, I'd like you to hear from now retired journalist Graham Smith, who covered the case at the time and interviewed Brenda's now deceased next door neighbour, Elizabeth Gordon, who came upon the horrific murder scene. It was a particularly brutal murder. I mean, it was a huge story in Aberdeen because of the brutality and because of the double life that Brenda Page appeared to live uh, and just because it's such a sad story but she was um, very badly beaten as I recall it had been a perhaps a frenzied attack and the attacker would have been left covered in blood and there's a horrible sight that uh, the neighbour encountered when she eventually found the body later on the day of the murder the neighbour was Mrs Elizabeth Gordon who was a, an elderly lady and who was uh, lived across the hall uh, I think from, uh, from Brenda Page and they were quite close and I think Brenda Page kept an eye on her and, and Mrs Gordon occasionally would make a meal for Brenda Page. And a colleague arrived at the, the house on the Friday to try and contact Brenda Page who hadn't turned up at her, at her work and couldn't get any reply. So he contacted Mrs Gordon who had a spare key and she went in um, and saw this horrible sight in the, in the bedroom of Brenda Page's body and was so taken aback that she ran out and asked the, the man to go in and confirm that what she'd seen was what she thought it was. And that was, that was when the police uh, were called and they, they indeed found it a horrific scene. Even for, with all their experience, I was told it was just a massive blood in here uh, and her head had been severely battered. The assumption of the killer being covered in blood is a fair one, 
But you'll hear later that that may not have been the case. So let's get back to the High Court in Aberdeen and the afternoon of day two of the Crown case. Now remember, at this point the jury has only heard what was read out in the joint minute and even though the cause of death was not disputed, it was important to hear from a pathologist about the injuries and level of violence. But as you're about to hear, the jury were spared the thing that many dread the most when sitting in a murder trial. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Have a good day, Thank you, my lord. My lord, the next witness is Crown Witness number 108, Dr Marjorie Turner. I, I give notice that, that Dr Turner is a pathologist who has reviewed uh, some of the evidence in this case. I will not be showing photographs of the late uh, Brenda Page, but there is a computer-generated model, and I just give notice in case anyone would find that distressing. Thank you, Abigail. Are you Dr Marjorie Turner? Yes. Tell us your age, please. 60. And your qualifications? Bachelor of Medicine and Bachelor of Surgery, which is my medical degree. Uh, Fellow of the Royal College of Pathologists, which is my postgraduate pathology qualification and a diploma in forensic medicine. What is your occupation? I'm a forensic pathologist. It's probably self-evident these days, but please explain to ladies and gentlemen what the duties are of a forensic pathologist. In Scotland, certainly, we primarily work uh, on the instruction of the procurator fiscal to examine, by which we mean to undertake post-mortem examinations, of individuals who've died in a wide range of circumstances, from people who have died of sudden natural causes, accidents, suicides, related to alcohol and drugs, but also in individuals who've died in circumstances that are thought to be suspicious. Uh, so we may attend a scene, we then undertake a full post-mortem examination, documenting injuries, uh, scars, etc., and an internal examination to establish a cause of death and we can give an opinion in some instances around the circumstances of death and other aspects. We prepare a report for that and give evidence in court when required to do so. And in broad terms, how often have you given evidence in such a capacity? Oh gosh, um, I've been a forensic pathologist for just about 30 years and in a few months time, uh, primarily working in the west of Scotland. So many hundreds of times. Thank you. The court heard she'd been asked to conduct a review of the circumstances relating to Brenda Page's death, which included the post-mortem report by William Henry and George Coburn, which was dated 18th of July, 1978. She was asked to read the conclusion. The conclusion states, this lady died as a result of a violent assault. She had been struck on the face and head at least 20 times by a blunt instrument, which fractured the base of the skull, caused intracranial bleeding and produced unconsciousness. She died while in a state of coma from the inhalation of blood, which originated from her facial injuries. What is intracranial bleeding? That was bleeding inside the skull, so it was bleeding around the surface of her brain and a small amount inside her brain. Thank you. Could you have before you please Crown Production 155? Is that a report you prepared and which is dated the 20th of, sorry, 24th of July 2020? It is. And what was the 
nature of the work that you did in this case? Uh, I undertook a review of some available documentation and, and evidence. So the, I had access to the original post-mortem report that we've just discussed, some photographs uh, of the scene and of the post-mortem examination itself, and some other re reports in relation to that regarding examinations that were undertaken uh, back in 1978, if I got the name. And I also looked at some potential weapons. And I took that all together and prepared uh, an opinion report uh, on the evidence that was available. Thank you. We're, have you also seen a computer-generated model uh, which depicts the injuries? I have, yes. Could we put that on the screen now, please? At this point, a digital image of a female body was projected on the screens. The jury had monitors in front of them in the jury box. The people in the public and press galleries craned their necks to look on larger screens on the left and right-hand side walls of the court and a monitor in front of the accused, Christopher Harrison. You'll hear in a moment the medical descriptions of the injuries, but my layman's observations were the image is quite basic there's no hair, so the scalp injuries were shown clearly. The bright red mark showing where the blows struck her head looked like the markings on a tiger loaf where the bread has risen and broken. Jagged, long bursts. The facial injuries were severe on her nose and eye areas. I have seen the actual photos of the crime scene and Brenda still in situ on the bed. The neighbour, as you heard, described the scene as being blood and hair. She was right. It is unusual for a jury not to be shown the photos of the actual body, and later I asked the advocate deputy Alec Prentice about this. But for now, let's return to the evidence of Dr Marjorie Turner. And we'll go to the head zoom. Now, in broad terms, uh, bearing in mind the limitations, does this uh, image reasonably reflect the injuries which were recorded in relation to Brenda Page? Yes. Could you tell the ladies and gentlemen what a laceration is? A laceration is a type of blunt injury which is sustained as a tearing or splitting of the skin caused when someone's skin is hit against or by a blunt object and it just causes the skin to tear. Could you turn to the penultimate page of your report, that is production 155, under the heading Opinion Conclusions. This woman has died as the result of blunt force trauma to her head. She has sustained a large number of lacerations, predominantly to the top and back of her head. The available photographs of these are very limited, so information is dependent on that within the post-mortem report, and which has described a main conglomerate chopped area of an estimated 10 to 12 wounds and a further 10 lacerations, mainly V-shaped or linear. Their sizes vary from V-shaped lacerations with limbs approximately 1.3 to 1.9 centimetres long to linear irregular lacerations approximately 1.9 to 5.7 centimetres long. Thank you. And the next paragraph, please. In addition, 
there were a number of lacerations on her face, which were well seen in the photographs. Of these, three are on the forehead, two on the right and one on the left, with two of these appearing very clean-cut linear wounds. Two on the right cheek, one below the eye, the other in front of the ear, have a vague curved appearance with bruising and small lacerations on the nose. There are fractures of the right cheek and nose related to these and also fractures described on the base of the skull on the right towards the front, which are most likely associated with these injuries. There was, however, no fractures described of the vault of the skull in association with the lacerations to the scalp. And the next paragraph. These lacerations are classical of blows from a blunt weapon or weapons, with the linear wounds corresponding to an element that has an edge to it. Could you expand on that part, last part, please? The linear wounds corresponding to an element that has an edge to it. Lacerations can be various sizes and shapes, as we have here, and some are really quite non-specific and we can't give any good indication of what type of weapon uh, might have caused them. Sometimes, as here, when we see linear, very clean-cut lacerations, it indicates that the weapon that's caused it's likely to have had a linear and or edged component to it that has impacted the skin almost in the same line as the, the laceration is going. So it could be anything from a hammer of a weapon, a, a pole, uh, anything like that, or anything, any weapon that's just got a, a, an edge to it as part of it. Thank you. Could you read the next paragraph, please? There is little injury. There is little injury to the trunk just some apparently non-specific bruising on the back of the right shoulder and an abrasion on the top of the right shoulder. This latter injury is, though, distinctly shaped, forming a triangular abrasion with a base of approximately 1.4 centimetres and height 1.8 centimetres, each side approximately 1.9 centimetres. The weapon that inflicted this is very likely to have a distinct triangular component of dimensions very similar to the injury. Okay. And the next paragraph, please. There was extensive bruising on the back of both hands with some overlying abrasion and dislocation of the right ring finger, classical of defensive injuries. Okay, now if we just pause there, if you look at the screen, We've got an image of the right hand zoom, and is this the type of injury that you're describing in your report? It is, yes. You can see the bruising across the back of her hand with some overlying darker red areas, which are the abrasions. Thank you. And then we'll look at the left hand, and is that, again, a reasonable depiction of the injuries sustained? Yes. Thank you. I know it's hard to imagine what's being described, but I can tell you that seeing the images of the bruising to her hands was significant and upsetting, knowing they were inflicted while she was trying to protect herself from the blows being struck. There are also two further distinct patterned injuries. On the back of the right hand, 
what was described as an irregular curved abrasion one inch with on its radial side five punctate abrasions in a line parallel to it, which in the photographs is seen to be an almost right-angled linear injury with limbs very approximately one and two centimetres long. On the back of the left forearm were four punctate abrasions in the shape of a rectangle across the limb. The sides measured 2.5 and 1 centimetre in length, with halos of bruising around them. These injuries will also reflect an element of the weapon used. Thank you. Now, you described in that paragraph that these, uh, the extensive bruising on the back of both hands with some overlying abrasion and dislocation of the right ring finger, classical of defensive injuries. What, what do you mean by defensive injuries? We use that phrase to indicate injuries which are likely to have been sustained as the individual tries to defend themselves. The natural instinct, if you're being attacked, is to raise your, your, your hands and your arms in front of yourself to protect your head and neck, for example. And therefore, you can sustain injuries to these areas. When we're dealing with a blunt assault, as we are here, which can be punching, kicking or blows with weapons, then what you'll see is bruising, <laughs> abrasions or lacerations, typically to these areas, the back of the hand or indeed the forearms. Thank you. Could you read the first sentence of the next paragraph, please? These injuries could possibly all have been from a single weapon, dependent on its component features, or multiple weapons could have been used. Although the pattern and distribution of injuries may suggest a single weapon, certainly to the top back of the head, okay. a separate weapon could have been used, for example, on the face is certainly possible. Thank you. And the next sentence, please. The lack of underlying fractures, except those on the face, indicates the force inflicted was not extreme, which could reflect that the weapon was not very heavy and or that the force behind the blows at impact was not huge. Thank you. And now... As you read uh, to us from the original post-mortem report, there was recorded um, that she had been struck in the face and head at, at least 20 times by a blunt instrument which fractured the base of the skull, <laughs> caused intracranial bleeding and produced unconsciousness. Do you agree with that from the information that you were able to see? Yes. Are blows to the head in themselves dangerous? Yes. And why is that? It depends on a number of factors, but the risk is that you will sustain a significant head or and or brain injury that can be fatal. And you know, a single blow which knocks someone to the ground uh, can result in that individual's death. There are a number of potential mechanisms whereby someone can die with blows to the head, some requiring you know, different patterns of, of, of injury. Would it have required at least 20 blows to kill Brenda Page? Not necessarily, no. And if an instrument of some type was used, could death have occurred with a much lower number of blows? It's possible, yes. 
even one blow. As I said, dependent on the nature of the blow, but particularly if it knocked someone to a hard surface, then yes. All right, thank you very much. Here's another show for you to tune into if you don't already, and a fellow member of the Audio Boom Network, the True Crime Enthusiast podcast that stems from its enigmatic street talking host, Paul Sutherland, the enthusiast of the show's title. Since its inception in September 2017, the show has grown from a weekly written blog into a regular one man and his mic, matter of fact, street talking podcast dedicated to covering in-depth, often obscure and long-forgotten true crimes, solved or unsolved, from the darkest corners of the United Kingdom and Ireland. These cases aren't your Shipmans, your Wests, your Sutcliffs. In fact, for the most part, they're crimes you probably haven't ever heard of. And if you have, then be prepared for the host's detailed spin on all. Some of the tales may shock you, terrify or break your heart while equally others may mind-boggle you, make you shake your head, may even make you laugh out loud. The host, Paul, prides himself on an extensive mixed bag of cases in his arsenal. Hundreds of tales, researched how only he can, and certainly to his own very high standard. Millions have enjoyed the show over the years and have spurned it on to grow into a successful live UK tour, appearances at conventions an ever-expanding worldwide listener base, and it's now eighth successful series, with no signs of it stopping or even slowing down anytime soon. Crime doesn't, so why would it? You can catch the True Crime Enthusiast podcast as part of the Audio Boom Network or through any of your podcast providers. Dr Turner was not cross-examined. This is not unusual in cases where the issue wasn't how the person died, but who killed them. The number of blows and injuries were proof of murder, and the defence didn't challenge it. The next witness was the first of a number of retired officers called to read out a statement of a witness who has died. This is allowed under a special section of the law and is essential for such a historic case where many have since died. 79-year-old Adam Smith who served as a police officer for 30 years, had interviewed one of Brenda's neighbours, Gail Gibb, on the 24th of July, 1978. He was given a copy of his handwritten statement and asked to read sections of it. About 31st of July, 1976, I met and introduced myself to Brenda Page. From then on, we got on a friendly terms or as friendly as neighbours can be. Thank you. And then do you see the last paragraph at the, the bottom starts between 2.30 to 3pm? Yes. Could you read that slowly for us, please? Between 2.30 3pm on Saturday afternoon, one Saturday afternoon during August or September 1976, my husband, witness William Gibb, came home and informed me he thought Brenda Page was entertaining, possibly a man. Or as, as he was entering the common front door, the door of the flat had closed, uh, as if the person leaving had chosen... I can't read that. Had closed, perhaps, the door? Closed the door, not wanting to be seen. And the next paragraph, please. 
and she said, I thought nothing of this at the time. The following morning, I met Brenda Page in the lobby, and she mentioned that her house had been broken into the previous day. She reckoned that entry had been gained by an insecure old sash-type window in the first bedroom, which had been fully ajar when she left, when she had come home about midnight. She also mentioned that the first door, the front door to her flat had been closed but unlocked, suggesting the method of leaving as she was quite alone, quite sure it had been locked. Nothing had been stolen from the house and she mentioned that she suspected her husband as she could not see, not see only any other person should enter and not steal anything. Might it be why? Not see why any other person? Yeah, could not see why right. any other person. That's correct, sorry. Right. Thank you very much. Still with the document you have in your possession, now, to, to put this in context, in the period just before this, the witness had been describing discussions that she had had with Brenda, the, the neighbour. Yes. There's a paragraph that begins with the words, I cannot. I cannot recollect her stating or mentioning that he had been violent towards her. At, at this time, she stated when she left the house in Mile End, Aberdeen, her husband would not allow her to take any of her property, especially a cat, which upset her most. As a result of this, she would not allow him to sell the house and get the half share, as the house was in the joint names. So, she, according to this witness, uh, Mrs Gibb, she's told that she's not, Brenda has not been allowed to take any property. Yes. And secondly, that as a consequence of that, she has prevented her husband from selling the house. That's correct. Yes. To, get, to get his half share. Could you go to page three for me, please? There's a paragraph that begins the following evening. The following evening, I think during August 1976, my husband, witness William Gibb and I were returning from an evening out and entered the common lobby when we met Brenda Page in the common lobby with a man she indicated him to us as her husband. I think it's introduced, is it? Introduced, sorry, yes. I cannot recollect his name, but he was tall and very thin with short hair. He did not speak. And read the next part for me, please. Within a couple of days, I spoke to Brenda Page and she explained that her husband had called at her invitation for dinner and they had brought and he had brought a bottle of wine. So, uh, according to this witness, in August of 1976, Brenda Page told her that she had invited her husband for dinner and that he had brought a bottle of wine. Yes. In the end of the first paragraph on page five, the witness, Mrs Gibb, is talking about a period of time between October and Christmas of 1976, is that right? This would, this would also have been 
between October and Christmas, 96, yeah. 1976? Yeah. And then could you read the next paragraph for me, please? She at no time mentioned she was attached to an escort agency. All right. Thank you very much. Eighty-four-year-old Adrian Jessup was called next. She was a lecturer in genetics at Glasgow University and met Brenda in 1969 when she arrived as a research student. They'd become friends and saw each other fairly regularly. Did you become aware that she was in a relationship with Christopher Harrison, also known as Kit Harrison? Yes. Yeah. Yes, she told me. Yeah. Did, did you ever meet him? Yes, yeah. yes, several times. Would you recognise him if you saw him again? No. No, OK. Did Brenda Page speak to you about her marriage? Yes, certain amount. Certain amount. Did she speak to you about the relationship with uh, Kit Harrison before she was married? No, before she was married, she didn't speak about the relationship. She was just about the wedding. Right. Really. Did she appear happy in her marriage? In her marriage? I thought she was a bit strained. I didn't think she was particularly happy, but... Yes. Did she tell you about anything in her occurring in her marriage that made her unhappy? Well, there were several things. I think Kit organised life to suit himself, which didn't always suit her. And he was becoming violent. He did hit her on one occasion. He told, she told me about right. how she ended up in hospital. Do you remember when she told you that? No, I think it was in the, sometime in the first two years, but I don't remember precisely when. Right. And she said she had to go to hospital? Yes, she did. Did she say what the nature of the injury was? No, no. Did she say where she was when this event happened? Yes, she was at home. They were planning to go on a holiday and he suddenly lost his temper. And when you say home, what was she meaning at that time? Well, they were in Edinburgh at the time in a rented house right. near the university. Right. So that this event that she talked about, she said, occurred when she was in Edinburgh? Yes, that's right. Okay. Yes. Did she raise the subject of her relationship with Kit Harrison from time to time? Um, no, it, at the time that she was engaged, she said nothing very much about the relationship other than on one point she wondered if he was committed to her. That I do remember, before they got married. Yes. Um, after they got married, of course, I, she moved away, so I didn't see her so often. Um, and at that point, I think things were getting difficult. Yes. Right. Did you become aware of an order from the court that she obtained? She told me that, right. yes. What, what did she tell you? She just said that she had moved out <clears throat> and a court order was for Kit not to come near the flat, yes. Did she say why she wanted that order? It was obvious that she was afraid of him. She said that, she told me that if he was, if, she, if he killed her, she said, he would do it so that 
nobody would know. That's what she told me. So I assumed she had had problems with them because she said that. Did you ever visit her in her flat? No. Did you ever visit her in her flat when she lived in Edinburgh? Yes. Yes. Was Brenda Page someone that was generally clean and tidy? I would have thought so, but I didn't pay very close attention. All right. Okay. Thank you very much. Did you see Dr. Page in company with Dr. Harrison? Yes. And did you ever witness any violence between them? No. So anything you learned about that was what you were told by Dr. Page? Yes. You said something in your evidence there about Dr. Page having said to you that something along the lines of if he killed her, he would do it in a way that... You said that. That, yes. that nobody would find out or something. Yes. Is that right? Were you asked to give a statement about your knowledge of this situation way back around the time that Dr. Brenda Page died? Well, I asked. I was, no, I don't think so. I was. Did you not give a statement to the police on the 28th of August, 1978? Yes, I did. So that would have been roughly a month or so yes. after Brenda Page yes. died. Yes. And you would have known, presumably at that time, that the police were investigating her murder? Yes. Did you tell the police in August of 1978 that she had told you that if Kit killed her, he would do it in a way that nobody would find out? At that time, they were asking really about what I knew of her factual as a person. I didn't mention much her opinions. I was sticking to facts and, and that statement. Well, I was talking about things I knew. I wasn't talking about opinions. Well, we, we can look at the statement in a moment. But what you were talking to them about was what she had told you. The interviews you're talking about, I was trying to remember our relation, my relationship with, with Brenda. Right. Well, let, let, let's look at it. Let's not, let's not be unfair about it. I'm going to stop here, as the cross-examination is detailed and lengthy. But I want you to consider this is an 84-year-old woman, and I think you'd agree, extremely articulate and sharp, despite her age. She's on the receiving end of a robust challenge of her evidence. Mr McConaughey doesn't miss the opportunity to use her own words from the past to try and contradict her. You'll soon hear how she fares in this battle of words. In the next episode of The Storyteller, Naked Villainy, the defence KC accuses a witness of making up evidence. This comment is just a comment you added in. It no. never having been said by Brenda Page. No, you're wrong. She said it. Kit's friend tries to explain why a threat by him to kill Brenda the day before she was murdered 
was missing from a police statement. The police, they were very young and frankly incompetent. And things get heated during cross-examination. It's preposterous. Well, I'm sorry, but that's what happened. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review as it makes a huge difference to guiding people to hearing this important story. This is an entirely independent production and your support is greatly appreciated. And if you want to hear exclusive interviews, longer episodes and insights, please head to the Patreon. The link is in the show notes. Thank you again for listening. This is a piece of history and you are for the first time in this format witnessing justice being done.